Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be going inside the ongoing murder case against Jesse James Hollywood. For those of you who are not familiar with this case, we'll uh, start from the beginning and tell you the whole story. But it is an actually an ongoing case, and today's guest, Michael Mijas, is an attorney, and he was the associate producer of the film Alpha Dog, which starred Justin Timberlake, and it was based upon this murder. And he's the author of the new book, Stolen Boy a psychological thriller based on this murder. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me on, Carol. You know, this is, I saw the film Alpha Dog, first of all. Um, It was very powerful. And I have a particular um, interest in this case um, because the, the boy who was murdered, Nicholas Markowitz, 15 years old, um, his family went to my synagogue. Wow, what a connection. <laughs> uh, they're incredible people, the Markowitzes. Yes, uh, both, now I, both I, Sharon can't, and Jeff. I can't say that I, you know, was friends with them or, or really um, knew them, but it was, there was sort of a buzz at the time. You know, we all were very um, sad for them about this whole incident. Um, why don't we start at the beginning, because, you know, this um, radio show is international, and so there are a lot of people listening who have no idea who Jesse James Hollywood is. And by the way, is that his real name? That is his real name, as given to him by his father, which he credits was naming him after his brother, Jesse's <laughs> uncle. Of course, a lot of people questioned that and wondered if that was really named after the um, old Western Time Outlaw, but he denied that when asked that. Of course, that was a heavy burden to wear, uh, that name for his son, and I think it's uh, attributed a lot to uh, the issue, the personality behind the person and uh, the results of what's taken place so far and possibly what's going to happen in the future with him in this case. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was really a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it, it was Hollywood their real name? Uh, as, as Everything, as I understand, tells me that there's a whole family of Hollywoods. The mother, you know, the, the uh, Jack Hollywood's mother, you know, again, being the furthest back that I was able to research as far as a uh, family is concerned with this. And, yeah, the Hollywood is the real name, and it seems to be a, you know, a spinoff of the old Hollywood land uh, name that had uh, resonated around Southern California for so many years. The Hollywood Land name? Yeah, did you know that the Hollywood sign used to be Hollywood Land sign, and they took off the land many years ago, and it was just called Hollywood. And it was based upon, and there was a family named Hollywood. I believe, yeah, and then the family was Hollywood, yeah, and it spun Hmm. off, and these are descendants of that family. These are descendants of that family name, as I understand it. 
Well, boy, it really was a heavy burden, and particularly since the father has been in trouble with the law as well. Yeah, he, um, <clears throat> Jack is a really very interesting father. Uh, very interesting person, very interesting individual. When I got involved in this, there were a lot of allegations. There were a lot of allegations that spun from this case that he was a high-profile mob pot dealer that smuggled lots of pot down from Canada and was a major distributor here in the western part of the United States and that allegedly his son was a spinoff of that network and also that these other kids that I call members of Jesse James Hollywood's posse, these other 17 to 20-year-olds, were sort of a part of his downline of distributing pot in Southern California. Hmm. Okay. So, um... What we can either start with um, your involvement. Well, I guess why don't we start there um, with your story? And but starting with actually, you know, when you first heard about this whole murder and so on before you were involved in it. I was at the back at that time. Now we're talking about the kidnapping took place in this thing back in August sixth of two thousand. So the body, Nicholas Marquez's body, is discovered a week later, roughly the 13th of August of 2000. That's when we started to become aware that something had happened. Uh, some hikers up in a rugged trail up above Santa Barbara called Lizard's Mouth had discovered a ditch uh, that ultimately turned out to be the burying plot uh, for the 15-year-old Nicholas Markowitz. Again, we're talking about 110-degree summer in August of 2000. The body had been um, had dematerialized in, a, in, an, in an amazing way in this incredible heat in this mm. two-foot grave, which allowed them, uh, based on smells and uh, flies flying around this area, they noticed something was going on. They dug up the body. They knew it was a kid. It had been badly decomposed. They didn't know who it was. They had run finger uh, print, uh, fingerprints on the body. They tracked those down because Nicholas Markowitz had had a pot issue in school. Um, he had had some law, uh, some law, legal trouble with pot, so they were able to match up the fingerprints. They ID'd the body. Mm. The following day after that, they then put a photograph out in the newspaper to try to uh, stir up witnesses on the case because they didn't know how the kid got up there. This was at the same time that um, plainclothes officers from the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department showed up at 6 o'clock in the morning at the Markowitz's house. And um, Susan Markowitz has, has talked about how, you know, she as soon as she saw them, she knew what they were there for. And, and, and there was just no mistaking with the grim looks on their face as they walked up to her door and uh, told them, told the family of their grisly discovery. Well, no. Okay. Now, one thing: um, the, his parents, his biological parents, Nicholas's biological parents, um, were divorced. No, right? actually, Nicholas's biological parents are who you went to temple with. Uh, that's Jeff and Susan Markowitz. It was Nicholas's half brother and half-sister, who had a different mother but the same father. So they shared the relationship through Jeff Markowitz, the father. But this kind of division or this um, this 
again, this new mother in their lives or a stepmother in their lives was kind of the center of their family issues, which kind of, again, created a tough time for the older brother. The older brother had Susan, grown up. you're talking about being the stepmother. Uh, uh, Susan was the stepmother of Ben Markowitz and Leah Goyonis. That's who they are now. These are Nicholas's older brother and sister, so to speak. Uh, these are two people who I interviewed thoroughly for uh, the story that went into both Alpha Dog and to Stolen Boy. Um, okay, so so it was um, um, so it was Nicholas's biological parents, but it was the it was the the stepmother for the, his half brother and sister, exactly. and it was the half brother Ben who had been the friend of Jesse James. Exactly. They were real good friends. Uh, ben was a year older than Jesse. Ben had a history. Ben had been living out on the streets pretty much full-time since he was 15 years old. He had become sort of an urban legend in the San mm-hmm. Fernando Valley. At 14 years old, this guy, through the anger that he had developed for his family, for his race, for his for who he was, had become the national karate champion at 14 years old. This kid was out snorting crank with Hell's Angels when he was growing up. He was out selling drugs. He was out strong-arming small-time dealers. This was how he survived on the streets. Eventually, he was reintroduced to Jesse James Hollywood. Jesse James Hollywood had an ongoing pot dealing um, business going with a, a downline posse of those who would sell below him. Ben sort of moved in and became the heat behind Jesse to protect uh, Jesse and his interests and any concerns that Jesse might have for people who didn't pay him back. Ultimately, they had a falling out between the two of them. This was over a difference, a $1,200 difference in a drug deal. Jesse ultimately held Ben's feet to the fire, wanting him to pay it back. Basically, Ben told Jesse, I'm not paying you anything back, and if you don't like it, let's see what you're going to do about it. The war of words escalated. This is going back again late 2005, early 2006. Ultimately, the week just before... Wait, wait, wait. Late 2000... 2005. But how I'm sorry. Did... I'm sorry. Late. I'm sorry. Late 1999. Okay. Early yeah. 2000. I, okay. I was missing my years there. Thank you for straightening that out. All right. So this was before the murder. So going back, uh, say in August, uh, late July of 2000. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave this on a cliffhanger because I hear the music. Let's do it. Um, but uh, yes, this is very fascinating, and I must say I do want to talk about this. I, I think a lot of it did have to do with this broken family aspect. That uh, Ben's, you know, that Ben now had a stepmother. Absolutely. We'll talk about, yes, we'll talk more about that. Um, we're talking today about the murder case against Jesse James Hollywood. We're getting a preview by uh, someone who knows more about this case than anybody else. Michael Mayhas. He's an attorney and he's the author of the new book, Stolen Boy. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The Carrie Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Carrie Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Carrie Douglas Show. Join Carrie each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas broadcasts each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, your premier source for faith based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, going today inside the head of Jesse James Hollywood and inside the head of attorney Michael Mihas, <laughs> who is an expert on this case, having been um, 
well, we'll hear about how he got involved and, and uh, right in the middle of it. And he's also been the associate producer of Alpha Dog, a movie starring Justin Timberlake about this murder. He's the author of the new book, Stolen Boy, also based on this true murder story. And Jesse James Hollywood is about to come to trial, so you're getting a preview of what the real scoop is. Before the break, um, Michael, we were talking about the uh, the brother of the boy who was killed, Nicholas Markowitz, kidnapped and then killed, um, and Ben, and um, how you know you were talking about how he lived on the streets and he was very a very angry young man, and um, surely you know I, that was one of the things that just kept going through my head at the time that this all happened in 2000. How there must have um, so much of this. Could have been avoided if the parents had never gotten divorced. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. Um, there were definitely. I mean, I I practiced family law for quite a few years as an attorney as well, and I've I've also practiced criminal defense. And you know, you obviously when you're doing anything for that long, you have an opportunity to kind of analyze and dissect why these families get into these situations, why these clients come into you as criminal defense, what are the dynamics that created their life, that created this anger or this attitude that led to this litigation, whether it's divorce or, again, whether it's criminal prosecution against them. And um, I, I think one of the things that you touched upon as we were taken away from the break was about the family dynamics with these guys. And when I interviewed Ben, um, which was a very interesting process in itself, because Ben, I probably interviewed him in roughly, say, 2003, late 2003. And by that point, so this is three years after the event, by that point, Ben, right after this thing had gone down, the murder had happened, Ben had committed, allegedly committed a strong-armed robbery, was mm. arrested and convicted for it, went to prison right away, was released yeah. um, by the time I interviewed him in 2003 or 2004. By that point, he'd gotten out. He'd gotten married. He had started up his own family. And this guy had completely changed. He was absolutely the most pleasant person, the, the, the opposite of the character that we had created and gotten all this information from um, for the movie and the book and the stuff that led to all this Hollywood litigation and my involvement in the death penalty case. In interviewing Ben, and I was the only one to get a full interview of the guy, I, I, the movie people didn't interview him, I had to wait and I had to be patient with him, and I was able to interview him actually after... Um, the movie had been completed as far as production was concerned. But one of the things that Ben expressed to me was, and one of the dynamics that he had when he was younger, was the problem of feeling welcome in this new household. What he felt was, and, and some of the dynamics behind it that I know you can absolutely relate to with what you do, is at three years old, his father had left him. He was three years old. And what he felt he had experienced when he went home to his mother, his mother had absolute rage at his father for having left her, for having left her with the kids, for having for what she felt was or what Ben had expressed were her feelings of having her life with a beautiful house and a beautiful family, family and a white picket fence destroyed and taken from her. And she was a woman who Ben had expressed that had a very hot temper and was a very angry woman and had taken out her anger on Ben. 
mm. had taken it out on him physically, had taken out on him emotionally, had this absolutely non-controlled rage against this boy at home. So Ben was facing these issues when he went home, when he, when he stepped out of line, when he complained, when he was upset, when this little child was trying to express its unhappiness, he met rage, anger, and violence. Mm. Then when he goes over to his stepmother's house, something, or his stepmother and his father's house, and again, I, I respect these people very much. I, I have a lot of love and appreciation and sympathy for them, but again, in trying to put this story together, um, what I understood and how Ben painted it was that, and how Ben's sister painted it, was that they were treated basically like extra luggage, that mm-hmm. the household was really geared up towards the, the new brother in the family. Um, uh, Susan Markowitz had always wanted to have a child. Um, it was about this new child, this Nicholas Markowitz in his life, and both kids felt like there really wasn't a place for them in that household. Well, so had their think, father left their mother for Susan, for the new stepmother? Yes, yes. And so Ben, ben felt that, I mean, just between the two households, there was no understanding. He expressed that he felt like he didn't, wasn't able to... Um, uh, to to really have a home there, and he was always going out on the streets. He felt like his father. He, he expressed that his father was always giving him ultimatums, ultimatums that he knew he couldn't live by. So he felt almost a, a, a sense of abandonment, abuse at home, abandonment from this new household, and it really ended up stirring him to try to find his peace elsewhere, which he went out and he would live with young girlfriends and their mom. He would live with drug dealers. He lived with Hell's Angels. He lived with tattoo artists, always trying to find this home environment, which it doesn't seem like he really ever found until after his brother was killed, until after this prison stint, and during this time it was starting to get formulated by the time I was interviewing him. Well, you know, it would have been Ben's fantasy that um, his brother, Nicholas, the, the, the child of his father and stepmother, would die. I mean, he must have had it, it, rageful fantasies towards him, wishes that uh, jealousy, sibling rivalry to the max, wishing that, that he was getting the love and attention that his little brother was. I personally believe that, absolutely. And it was what made it even tougher on Ben, and I, I just really I bled for Ben. I really felt for him, and I tried to express these kind of feelings uh, in Stolen Boy. But Ben always, or what Ben expressed and what even the parents had expressed uh, through court and through the things that I've read about them through my research, is that the parents had tried to separate Ben and Nick. What they had done is they tried to create a, a world that to deny Nicholas the reputation that Ben had achieved out on the streets. In denying that relationship, it really forged a greater desire in Nick to want to get out and spend more time with Ben. Mm. He was being denied this relationship, denied this brotherhood, and the brother felt the same way. And what Ben seemed to express to me was that he created this denial of family connectivity to separate himself of the pain of the overall rejection of never being able to have a family, uh, his own bedroom. He, was, he said one time he'd come back home, and they were going to put him in the garage. 
They couldn't even have him. They had spare bedrooms in the house, but Ben wasn't allowed to be there. This anger that he had, this uncontrolled rage, was not going to be a part of their household. Yet, where did the cause of this rage come from? It was a, it was an, an amazing dynamics, emotional dynamics in this family. Hmm. And when you compare that, then, to Jesse James Hollywood, who we talked about a little bit at the beginning, about whose, whose father was a, a renowned pot dealer. What about his mother? His mother, uh, his, again, from what I understand, his mother was the worker. Her mother, his mother was the legitimate one who was working back at a young age. Uh, Jack and the mother had met when they were in high school. They were inseparable. They were two rebels with their own causes when they were growing up, and they were a fiery personality. But, you know, Jack knew one way to make money, and it wasn't the legitimate way. And the way that Jack knew how to make money was ways that get you in trouble and ways to get people monitoring phone calls and ways that put a lot of pressure on a young family growing up. So there was always a, a kind of a, I think, a, a dynamic there as well of trying to let's get our life straightened out, let's walk the straight and narrow, and let's try to get this background of raising this childhood in the proper way. And I think the problem was that... Jesse was raised too much under too much of Jack's control and dominion, and Jack didn't have the skills necessary of raising this child up to be productive in other aspects of his life. Now, what was his dream? His dream was to be a ball player. Jack loved baseball, wanted to be a ball player, wanted did everything he could to get his two boys to become a ball player. But there's kind of a, a false uh, ideal that is created in this world of all sports all the time. And again, children who are raised under that kind of mentality, they don't develop these other skills, these other skills necessary. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of the case with Jesse as well. Hmm. You know, <laughs> boy, it's kind of like a perfect storm. We'll have to talk also about the character that Justin Timberlake plays and the whole dynamics of um, just how the how the kidnapping and it took place and and um, what happened after. I mean, it was almost an incidental murder. It wasn't really a planned uh, murder. Everything just turned out wrong. And, it's and that real kid is in life in prison right now. Yes. <laughs> yes, we'll have to talk about that, too. Your uh, empathy for him. You seem to be identifying with him, but we'll get there. These we need kids to take were a... me when I was growing up. I completely identify with him. <laughs> yes, that's very interesting. You went to the socialized way of being an outlaw, a lawyer. <laughs> that's why Nick Castavetes came to me, first of all, for this, because we grew up together, and these were us. And uh -huh. this, was, this was an interesting dynamic of us then putting this story together based on our childhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. We're taking a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is attorney Michael Mihas. He's the author of Stolen Boy. We're talking about the murder case against Jesse James Hollywood, who is in prison now awaiting his trial. So stay tuned. Ask 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Everything you want, everything you want to do, and everything you want to have is right at your fingertips. People think that accomplishing your goals has to be difficult. Guess what? It doesn't. All you need are the right tools and a map. And that is what author, professional speaker, and now talk radio host Charmin Lane is offering you. Join Charmin Wednesday afternoons at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel for success made simple. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with each Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking about the ongoing murder case against Jesse James Hollywood, who had Nicholas Markowitz uh, kidnapped and then wound up sort of inadvertently having him murdered. Um, we were talking about the uh, <laughs> sort of beginning and analysis of the different um, kids and their parents, um, which really could take whole semesters <laughs> of Psych 101. Um, really tragic, you know, and, and what's really tragic is that as we speak, um, these very same scenarios are going on all over the world in a sense, you know, different cultures, it's a slightly different situation in different cultures, but basically, um, especially with, you know, well, with dysfunctional families and particularly when families get divorced and, and remarry or one parent leaves um, uh, the other biological parent to 
uh, for somebody else and, and really don't pay enough attention to how the children are being affected. They're just thinking, well, I don't want to be with this person, I want to be with this person, and that's it. And my children just have to accept it. So um, the, the, the character that, well, why don't you tell the story and then get into the character that Justin Timberlake um, plays because he, too, was, feeling abandoned by his family and, and was an angry young man, and, and that's what drew him to um, uh, Jesse James. Well, what was very interesting about this guy, and this guy was Jesse Rugi, and uh, there, were, there were a lot of interesting factors about this, but let's go back to uh, Nick Cassavetes and myself trying to figure out the point of story. Yes. Uh, um, I'm... I'm my job was to get the facts together, do the research, put it together. Nick and I had grown up together in the Hollywood Hills. He knew that I wrote. He knew that I was a lawyer. He knew that I grew up right next to Santa Barbara or that I lived next to Santa Barbara, and I was pretty hip with this case. So my, my job was to put the story together, help him write the screenplay. Then I got so much information, I went off and wrote my book, Stolen Boy. But we're sitting there and trying to figure out, this is an amazing story with an amazing cast of characters. You've got five defendants, Jesse James Hollywood, four co-defendants, one of them being Jesse Ruge, who Justin Timberlake played in the movie. Where do you start with this story? Where do you end with this story? Do you cover the three days of the kidnapping, the murder? Do you cover the fall, the fallout afterwards, the discovery of the body, the arrest? The confessions, the trials, the convictions, Jesse James Hollywood disappearing into ether. What, and actually I, I believe Nick had first kind of narrowed it down, was to this Jesse Ruge character. Why Jesse Ruge? What, what made him so fascinating? What made him so fascinating to Justin Timberlake to sign on to play this part? What was so fascinating about both mm. Nick and Justin going up uh, to the prison in Northern California, one of the, um, the name is slipping me, uh, but one of the most notorious prisons in, in the United States to meet with Jesse Ruge before doing this movie? Well, one thing that's very interesting is Ruge is the kid. He was 20 years old at the time. He played Little League with Hollywood and the other characters who were involved in this in West Hills in the San Fernando Valley. Yes, yeah, so just one, one aside here. You know, that's what made it interesting, too, that these were not um, poor kids in South Central L.A. They were all middle-class kids who had way too much time on their hands and not enough parental love. They were white. They were they were white from white, well-to-do families. Um, some several of them were also uh, blonde and blue-eyed. And you know, you you spin off on that, and you get a lot of a lot of media coverage on both the fact that these are well-to-do white kids, not just some impoverished kids of color in an impoverished city, but these are well-to-do white kids. And if we want to magnify it a little more, we had several well-to-do blonde, blue-haired white kids who kidnapped a 15-year-old Jewish kid, and for for some reason, the 15-year-old Jewish kid has the opportunity to leave and never does, yes. and he ends up getting murdered at the hands of these others. And the dynamics that were created out of that were pretty incredible, something yes. I never saw coming until heavy critique followed the release of the movie and explored that whole aspect. But, of course, that, that was a very heavy aspect, and it was one that I really couldn't, I, I didn't think it was fair to delve into in the book, so I didn't. 
But going back to, to again, to Jesse Ruge, so he is with Hollywood on the day, Jesse James Hollywood. So what happens is Jesse James Hollywood, back in July of 2000, finds his pit bull hanging dead on his fence in the backyard mm-hmm. as if he got caught on the fence. He ultimately determined the dog was poisoned, then picked up and hung on the backyard, and he blamed, and his family blamed Ben Markowitz for it. His windows were broken out of his house, all through his house, thousands upon thousands of dollars of windows were broken out of his house the night before the retaliation. Actually, two nights before the retaliation. Jesse gets a message that he abs- that the guys identify as Ben Marco with saying, basically, dude, I know where you live, I know where your family lives, and you better carry a gun on you, because I'm going to get you. Jesse then attempts to retaliate. He's got Jesse Ruge and a guy named William Skidmore with him at his house. What they're going to do is they're going to go out and they're going to pack some heat. They're going to hop in their van and they're going to go break out Ben Markowitz's windows in retaliation to let him know that they aren't going to put up with that. Problem! They don't know where Ben Markowitz lives. The guy disappeared. He doesn't live with his parents. Mm. But the only one they know the address of are the parents' house, so that's where they're heading. On their way to break out the parents' window, Jesse recognizes the brother. They mm. pick him up. So Jesse Ruge is with him from the very moment that the kid is picked up. They basically cutting through the chase of the story a little bit. They end up in Santa Barbara. Hollywood convinces Ruge to keep Nick Markowitz at his house. He's kept there for three days. Jesse Ruge is his host. He becomes his best friend. They, they party together. They plan together. Ruge sits there and contemplates letting the kid go, wants to let the kid go. He doesn't like holding on to it. His parents are putting pressure on him. Who is this 15-year-old kid in your house that has been here for the last two or three days? I, I would say warning sign, warning sign for three days that these parents didn't quite catch on to. Mm-hmm. Then Ruge ultimately was there all the way for the final trip up to Lizard Mouth to Nick's grave. So he was the one through point. His character, Jesse Ruge, was the one through point for basically telling the entire story of the kidnapping and murder. So that's how that character became the central character of both the movie and the book. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's why it, that's one consideration why it was so attractive to Justin Timberlake. Mm. You know, that, that part of... Uh, the fact that the little brother, Nicholas, um, is with them for three days, has the chance to leave, um, and yet is so enamored by um, being able to play with his older brother's friends, essentially, you know, to smoke pot, to have women over, to, um, you know, be allowed to play with the big boys, was so seductive for him, and it was so sort of... Um, not so surreal that they would actually do harm to him that um, that he did just stay there voluntarily. I mean, he could have either been let go or he could have left himself at so many times. Carol, the heartbreak of, I mean, it, it, it literally chokes me up really thinking about it, but the heartbreak of that is that Nicholas knew his brother was going to save him. He knew Ben was going to do the right thing. He knew Ben, who he had always counted on, who was always there for him, regardless of the trouble, either one of them in. He knew he was going to be there. And, you know, it, to me, I mean, again, Nicholas was a huge video game player. 
so, uh, you know, it reminds me of this video game mentality that no matter what you get yourself into, and these kids have it, they're, they're, they're the reprogram that goes on through these violent video games that kids are yeah. playing these days, there's a reprogramming aspect that seems to go on with a lot of these kids, and the mentality they have is no matter what they do, they just press the reset button. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just know that in Nicholas's mm-hmm. mind, you know, this is just a game, man. This is yeah. just a game and getting kind of close, but there's nothing around here. 16-year-olds, 27 people come in and out over three days. Yeah. They know he's there. Nobody goes to the cops. We're just going to press reset at the end of all this. Yes. Now, what was the reason? Because this didn't really come out in the movie, unless I'm forgetting it. Um, why didn't Ben come and, and save him? I mean, he didn't Ben know that they had his brother? No. Ben was out partying, and they couldn't find him. And what happened was Hollywood decided that, as I, as I can interpret the facts, as Hollywood decided that he couldn't make the connection because everything would tie back to him and the kid missing. While Wait, uh, what was, do you mean? Who, who couldn't make the connection? Um, what, what, what Hollywood was concerned about, see, what happened was when they were coming back, they pick up Nick on that Sunday afternoon, and they figure out they're going to take him to Santa Barbara. They're going to get him out of the area. They're going to take him to Santa Barbara and get a hold. Everything's cool. We've got him. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody can tie it into us. Uh, then they're taking off. Nobody knows that Nick's been picked up. Nobody knows there's any problems, right? So what happens when they're driving back, all of a sudden Nick Marquez's pager is going off incessantly. Nick is like chagrined. What is that noise? Why is it happening? Is this Ben? Is this Ben calling you? No, it's Nick's mom. Nick's mom had given Nick a pager that he was expected to respond to within 10 minutes uh, of the time he got paged and explained exactly what a situation is. It was their p- efforts to try to monitor him. Jesse knew the parents were on to this, and he couldn't take a chance of contacting Ben because they would connect it to why Nick was missing and not responding to his pager. I see, I see. Hmm. Very sad. All right, we'll hear more when we come back. There is so much more to this. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is attorney Michael Nihas, the author of Stolen Boy and the associate producer of Alpha Dog. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy-to-understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking about the ongoing murder case against Jesse James Hollywood for the kidnapping and murder of Nicholas Markowitz, although he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, um, was he? My guest is attorney Michael Mijas, the author of Stolen Boy. Um, I mean, it was it was the Justin Timberlake character, the other Jesse, who, who actually pulled the trigger in the end, right? Actually, the Justin Timberlake character was just there up at the burial plot and was basically there to draw Nicholas up there and to get him there. And at that point, it appears that he was in so much fear for his own safety in that he had been convinced that if the kid wasn't murdered, they would all be looking at life in prison. So he basically turned from his from Nicholas's best friend to a kid operating on fear and under heavy alcohol and pot influence could not think clearly. One of these things where we have these these young minds of twenty year olds who aren't fully developed to start with, and then they get this incredible pressure and they and this all this scenario is blown out of proportion through incredible consumption of alcohol and pot, and these kids did not have a chance at thinking straight and making the right decision. Yes, and it's it's really uh, but okay. But you didn't answer the question. He, was he the one who pulled the trigger? No, it was a guy named Ryan Hoyt who was presently okay, on yes. death row. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. He, he had never been arrested for before this case, and there's a, so, there's a sad case for you too. Yes, and and he did it out of loyalty for well fear and and but we were talking in the break, and you were um, there's a missing part here. Why don't you just go through that so that people understand what this fear is coming from. The fear, what this, what this case, and the reason I got involved in the trial itself, I just to tell you, I've been subpoenaed three times in the trial, testified twice, been ordered to have all my notes and tapes of interviews turned over. It led to the prosecutor being thrown off and the case being appealed to the California Supreme Court. I'm still presently looking at a subpoena from the prosecutor. I could go to jail for not giving him the information he wants to kill Jesse James Hollywood. But the reason I got involved in this case in the first place was because there had been a misperception created by law enforcement officials through the mass media that this had been a revenge killing for a drug death. It, it wasn't that. What this was, this was a case that spun off from fear. It spun off from Jesse James Hollywood being afraid of Ben Markowitz. Back in those days, Ben Markowitz was a very 
frightening human being, and he put the fear of death in Jesse's heart. We had the incident with the dog. We had the incident with the broken windows. We had the phone threats. Jesse took those very permanent personally and had to figure out a plan to counter that, to rest, to rest Ben Markowitz's anger. When Jesse came down to the second day of the kidnapping, he went to his own lawyer. He was afraid to contact Ben Markowitz because when they were coming back after the kidnapping from West Hills to Santa Barbara, Nick Markowitz's pager went off incessantly. Hollywood is like, who is that? I mean, is that your brother? And it's like, no, man, it's my mom. My mom gave me this pager. I'm supposed to call her right back. Please let me call her back. No, dude, you aren't going to call her back. They didn't let Nick call back. But what they realized is that Nick wasn't just out there by himself. They realized that Nick's parents knew he was missing because he wasn't responding. The mom was panicked in calling back every 10 minutes on this trip. So they knew the parents were looking for him. If they had actually tried to get a hold of Ben Markowitz during that time, they feared that the connection would be made. Nick is missing. He's not calling back. And here Hollywood is contacting him for whatever reason. What's Jesse going to try to do? Kind of resolve things? Try to get his money back? Try to make sure Ben doesn't come back and hurt Jesse or his family or break out something else in his house? So Jesse never made the contact, never attempted then, to make the contact. But then how was, um, but if he had stolen um, Nicholas, so that his brother would pay the $1,200 that he owed. How was his brother, Ben, going, I mean, yes, Ben, going to be paying the money if he didn't know that Nicholas was stolen? This is what angry, knee-jerk reactions uh, compounded by pot-smoking and alcohol-drinking will do to the judgment. Jesse realized too late that he blew it. There was an incident, his Father told me about when Jesse was there beating Nick up on the side of the street before, before putting him in the van, that he was going to let him go, that he wanted to beat the scare into the brother and deliver that to Ben. But what Jack told me was that William Skidmore was doing nine years in prison, then pulled a shotgun out and put it up to Nicholas's head and said, you know, where's your brother, dude? And, of course, it scared the hell out of Nicholas. Jesse said, dude, what are we going to do? How am I going to let him go now? So he had to keep him. So he had to keep him with him. And then during this trip, they kept getting kept getting more messed up on pot smoking and on uh, on alcohol. And Jesse's judgment went away. He decided not to try to contact Ben. The next day, he contacted his lawyer, went and had a meeting with his lawyer. And basically, when Jesse said, "Look, I've got these friends who did this. What are they looking at?" His lawyer basically said, "Dude, your lawyer, your friends are looking at life in prison." That's that turned kidnapping. everything around. That Just kind of the signaled the end of this. But it was looking at life in prison just for having kidnapped Nicholas? For having kidnapped Nicholas with the intent, with ransom attached to it, the intent of getting $1,200 back that Jesse attributed to Ben because Jesse was owed $2,000 for a pot transaction months before. Ben said, I'll collect it. What Ben collected instead were bogus hits of ecstasy. Ben tried to sell them, got about $800 worth back before everybody let him know they're not going to buy anymore because he's selling bogus ecstasy. So he ended up giving Hollywood $800 and these bogus pills back minus the $1,200 more. It was that $1,200 difference that led to the division of these two who were once best friends and caused this intense uh, 
battle of egos between the two that escalated into this. Well, yeah, I mean, that the battle of egos has a lot to do with the whole thing, escalating everything. You know, and I know, of course, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but, um, well, people, I, I will uh, ask you to tell people your website so that they can find out more about all of this and, of course, to buy your book, which is very timely with the trial coming up again. Um, but I just wanted to say that um, a lot of the information that you originally got for this trial was from Ron Zonin, um, one of the prosecutors um, in Santa Barbara, who, I don't know if you know, but um, who I have had dealings with in regard to the Michael Jackson case. That's, it was during that time when I was dealing with him, when he was going through the Michael Jackson yeah. issues of the Michael Jackson trial. I used to go to school with Michael Jackson, and I did a Pepsi commercial with him back in my days as a starving <laughs> actor. So we used to have some very interesting conversations about that. And yes, what happened is Ron wanted to create a global wanted poster through the movie and the book. He ended up giving me access to his entire file. Again, Jesse James Hollywood has disappeared. He's out into ether. So it seems like the right thing to do. It seems like the right thing for him to give me as much material as he can so we can paint as accurate of a portrait of what happened as we can. But who would know that Jesse would get captured in March of 2005 in Brazil and it would just change the dynamics of everybody's relationship who was even involved in this movie and book project together. Yes, which, which is an, also an amazing story that he managed to avoid law enforcement for five years and then got captured what? what? Did it have anything to do with the movie? Um, I ultimately, I gotta believe that the publicity that we generated through the movie, uh, it was international publicity. You get Bruce Willis, Sharon Stone, Justin Timberlake, Emile Hirsch, characters like that on it. It just generates in itself and expedites, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, exposure. I think that, I think that energy probably helped to make this ultimate connection. But basically what happened is Hollywood's cousin had decided to go visit him in Brazil. Uh, they had, as I understand it, they had picked up this information. Uh, monitoring certain phone calls. They Interpol intercepted her when she entered Brazil, uh, kept her there uh, for interrogations until she finally admitted her purpose and her location that she was going to meet him, and they set it up from there to capture him. Wow. All right, well, <laughs> there should be a book, too, here when the trial happens. Um, why don't you tell people, give people your websites and how they can get the book? I appreciate it. Uh, my, I have very fascinating discussions regarding this case, Jesse James Hollywood, Alpha Dog, the death penalty, on my weblog at www.stolenboy.com. My website, with just plain information on my involvement in the case, Alpha Dog, and my book, is at www.michaelmihas.com. That's M-E-H-A-S, like me has. Okay, and again, the name of the book is Stolen Boy. Of course, you can get it on Amazon and where books are sold as well. But there is a lot of interesting information on the uh, two websites, the StolenBoy.com and MichaelMihas.com, uh, M-E-H-A-S.com. Well, thank you very much. This is obviously not the end of the story since um, uh, we will be having the trial coming soon. 
and um, we should bring a lot of publicity for your book. <laughs> I would think so. I just My biggest concern now is just staying out of jail through this process. I want <laughs> to keep Ryan Hoyt and Jesse James Hollywood alive. I hope to create more awareness and discussion regarding the death penalty. I think it will expedite our collective evolutionary process amongst us all if we can start thinking about life and love and compassion instead of just killing these kids who get in trouble. Okay. Well, we'll see how that all unfolds. It would be interesting to uh, to see you on the witness stand. <laughs> it has been interesting. Let me. Yes. Yeah. Very stressful situation. Yes, you're you're not used to that. Well, thank you for um, being a guest on the show again. My guest was attorney Michael Mihas. The book is Stolen Boy. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you so much for having me aboard. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.